0: Today on the show, we have Dalia Murahid, Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, author, and public speaker.
1: This is Ikhlas. And this is Mecca. You're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and Muslims in America. Mecca, tell the people where they can find us.
2: You can find us wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Acast. You can also find us online at identitypoliticspod.com, on Twitter at identitypolpod, and
1: on facebook.com slash identitypolitics. And remember, if you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey Mecca. Hey class. It's been a while. Eat Mubarak. <laughs> I know, right? Like I I don't
0: I think it's like haram to even say eat Mubarak <laughs> at this point. Like, <laughs>
1: Like isn't it funny how like the day after Ramadan you're like when was Ramadan again? Like it's just like it's like a distant memory. It yeah. does it absolutely feels that way. You kind of feel like lost in time where you're like did I just like fast 30 days? Yeah, I guess. That's true. <laughs>
0: also with like blackout Eid and stuff it's like I spend Ramadan like all reflective and then I spend Eid day like on Instagram the entire day.
1: <laughs> the entire day. You have to like look at everyone's photos, then you have to post yours and you have to post your story. It's like very time consuming. And then between that, napping and eating, it's just like a whole day just like gone. (laughs) Seriously. Um, But I'm happy to be back. We have a couple more episodes of the season left. So that's exciting. Yeah, we do. Before summer vacation. Yeah. So today we're talking with Dalia Mogahed and. Before we get into the interview with her, I thought it might be good for us just to have a little conversation about like, what's it like to be famous? <laughs> uh, oh, okay. I didn't I didn't realize I was in the presence of someone who is famous. I mean, you better recognize. <laughs> no, I'm totally joking. So not famous, but we have had like encounters, like even this Ramadan, where we were both at Black Iftar in Atlanta, and some fans of the show came up. And they were like really excited to meet us. Yeah. And for me, I remember it was like awkward. I like you got up and like you were hugging them and like talking. And then I was like trying to sit and pretend like I wasn't there.
0: <laughs> yeah, you literally like put your hand over your face. Like you, you
1: like physically disappeared. And I was like, what is happening right now? <laughs> but it's like I, it's something that I'm still not used to, even though it's like happened before. Right. Where you're out and about and like people recognize you, but like you don't know them. So like how does it feel for you when you're out and you get like recognized? by someone you've never met oh man
0: I have such a complicated relationship with them I think at first it it felt really like off-putting and jarring because like I don't know I'm the kind of person that just like I I'm terrified of like being watched you know and it's like I recognize we live in a surveillance state and I have TSA pre so like obviously I'm getting watched like (laughs) everywhere I go (laughs) but I I I just like it, it freaks me out like it freaks me out being seen without like knowing that you know mm-hmm. and, and without that like thing doing the seeing being like god <laughs> um yeah. like it it just like it feel it, it would feel really like jarring and it made me it would make mm-hmm. me like watch where I would go and and just you know like i became really like especially when i was in dc um i became really awkward and like a little bit withdrawn because i mm-hmm. didn't want to run into people and i had an experience with like one eid where I was like running late for prayer and I like ran in and someone was like, Oh my God, identity politics. And mm-hmm. I like just kind of looked at her, but like kept running. Cause like I was trying to go and like make prayer in time. Yeah. And then I had this moment where I was like, this is a listener of our show. This is someone who supports our work. Exactly. And this may be the one chance, like the one opportunity she has to meet me. And she could go back to her friends and be like, yo, I met Mecca from identity politics. And she was mm-hmm. like, hella stank
1: and like thank
0: like, yeah and, and and like so i had to like i literally backtracked yeah. like i i was running like away and then i like turned around it was like what was your name like thanks so much for your support like i'm gonna go yeah. and make prayer but like if i if you're still here afterwards like would love to like get you know chat or or something mm-hmm. like that just because it's like it's not like i feel like i have a responsibility to strangers but it's like yeah, our show we have a lot of supporters and that's why we do it um yeah. is to be able to have conversations that inshallah like are of benefit to people and so it's like the least i can do is acknowledge that um and acknowledge mm. that like there would be no us like without them. So I, I feel like i'm at a point where it's not something that i seek and it's like you know i'll put my twitter account on private i'll delete all my tweets like i'll i'll do things regularly so that i so i don't get caught up in it and i don't get caught up in just like seeking the fame. Um, -hmm. but that I can just like focus on doing the work. And if someone recognizes me, like, I won't
1: try it. I'll try not to like be mean about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I feel like (laughs) I can't remember if we talked about this on the show before, but I feel like I'm totally comfortable and like 30 feet from stardom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, listeners, if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch his documentary, 30 Feet from Stardom. It came out a few years ago, but it, like, interviews different background singers, or do they call them back up? I
0: also think singers? it's 20 Feet from Stardom, but yeah. Oh, 20 Feet from Stardom. I like, you just i like also made feet. up.
1: <laughs> yeah. You're, like, backstage. Stage. 20 Feet from Stardom. <laughs> Um, but I feel like that's me exactly where it's like I don't want to be the, you know, Mariah Carey out front, but I, like I totally want to harmonize with Mariah Carey just like 20 feet back.
0: <laughs> I love I love what you imagine that you can do that, like you can harmonize with Mariah Carey. Like that's, that's quite a lofty goal that you just
1: casually threw in there. I mean, you know, like d- during my spare time, you know, <laughs> um, that's something that I could do. But no seriously i love that when you get to do what you love right like we really love producing this show um we really enjoy doing the interviews like everything and we really love our listeners but i have like no desire to be like out front like top instagram influencer why like, not blah, 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 this and that why not i think i value like privacy and i also can understand how when you do enter that space where maybe you weren't even seeking it, but you've become it, like all the things that come along with that. And I think over time, it really does start to like feed your ego, even if that like wasn't your intention, right? (laughs) But I think you start to think more of yourself than you really are, just by a matter of like people constantly like affirming you, being like, Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so this. Oh, you're so that. Like, and how do you? Oh my God, you're so funny. How do
0: you grow in a space like that where everyone's just complimenting you and not challenging you?
1: Yeah, I think it becomes hard. <laughs> Who I feel like somebody has a song about this like who's your real friends you know uh, everyone has a song about this
0: and I mean like I don't know if you've ever watched any of those like celebrity biopics or like you know or I, I think it was E or VH1 they would have they would have all these like stories mm-hmm. oh, about yeah, like behind the music biopics, and you would see like yeah. how the fame like ate away at them and you know I take this class um, with the Evans like every week and we actually chatted somewhat about fame last week and he had this mm-hmm. quote and I can't remember if it was from a scholar or, or where it was from but he said whoever desires fame is a servant of fame and whoever desires obscurity is a servant of obscurity whoever desires Allah mm-hmm. is a servant of Allah and so we had this interesting conversation where he was basically like sometimes even purifying your intentions even just like focusing on mm-hmm. your work and doing the right thing like it does mean getting a little recognition recognition. recognition but if you're seeking that recognition then you just become a slave to being recognized like it's like no shade but it's like being an influencer it's like gotta like push out this content like i just need to Mm -hmm. stay on people's mind and it's like who are you really serving at that point you know
1: Mm. yeah that's real that's totally real who are you serving i think that's a good question to just like always keep in mind with like everything you're doing is like okay, who are you doing this for? And like, sometimes it is for me. (laughs) Sometimes
0: it's just a stunt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, also because we started this conversation with Eid, I feel like Eid is always about stunning. (laughs) Where you're like, let me get this outfit. Like, let me take these pictures because I'm doing it all for the gram. Totally. (laughs) Um, But no, I think that's difficult. I feel like you have to be a really strong person and to be able to handle you know, different levels of fame. Yeah. And I don't think I'm strong enough for that. Because yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would eat a lot of that stuff up. But I imagine if you're like a stronger person, you can constantly be like purifying your intentions and being like, no, I'm doing this because I really want to resolve this yeah. issue. Right. Or I really want to bring this knowledge to people. Like I'm not interested in being loved. And
0: I think the difference is like something that's self driven versus something that's like externally motivated, you know? And it's like, if you lose yourself, then you become what people think of you. And that is so dangerous to become even positive or negative. It's like when people are like, oh my God, you're Mm -hmm. so this, you're so that. And it's like, I'm actually not, (laughs) you know, like, it's just like, (laughs) I don't actually like think that that is the case. And so it's just like becoming a perception, like a flattened, like one dimensional version of yourself. Mm -hmm. I just feel like that's a dangerous game. Anyway, we could go really deep in this (laughs) because clearly we have a lot of thoughts. Oh my gosh. Um, But I want to (laughs) shift gears a little bit because like we are talking to Dahlia today and I don't know if you recall a few weeks ago, I decided to fire Mm -hmm. off some tweets as I often do. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. about none other than Ilhan Omar. And, you know, it was around the time she was being accused of a lot of different things, um, including anti-Semitism. She came out and issued an apology for that. Um, She had a lot of her like Jewish community allies and colleagues like come out in her defense and, and things of that nature. But the media just kept like, hammering back down on this narrative and every single time she said anything it was picked apart in a million ways and i just got so frustrated that we literally have like elected officials including in the highest office that overtly like are Mm -hmm. racist but you have this person that like Mm -hmm. unintentionally insinuated something with like you know bigoted undertones possibly you know and it's like this is every single news story and like every single news cycle and so i just like really was feeling for her like as also, like, a black Muslim, like, visibly Muslim woman mm-hmm. um, that, like, there is so much hatred and vitriol, and, like, just by mentioning her name, I had to put my account on private because of all of the people that came out of the woodwork, like, all of the, like, graphic, like, pig's blood mm. and all of the, like, death threat oh and, like, things of that nature. That's and it's crazy. just, like, why do you feel like some of the most hated, like, Muslims in America right now are women, Like Ilhan gets some of it. I feel like Linda Sarsour gets a lot of it. Um, But I -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, of course, Muslim men and leadership positions are subject to um, a lot of hatred as well. But do you feel like there's something Mm -hmm. special that's reserved for like women who like dare to like speak out?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, right. Even if you just think about women in general who speak out, right, like take out the Muslim part. But just having women speaking out is something that you know, people are like, oh, that's not how women should be, right? (laughs) Um, Women should be like quiet in the back. But I'm like, if you're speaking truth to power, (laughs) right? Like, then why be quiet? Um, And I think that's something that a lot of people don't wanna hear because I think some of the people that you named are speaking a lot of truth, um, and that's very hard for people to digest because they don't want these truths out there. And especially coming from like the mouths of women where it's like, Oh, you don't belong in this space. It makes me think about Congresswoman Rashida when she like made that controversial statement, right? Like impeach, <laughs> member, like talking about President Trump. And I just was like, yes, girl, like, you know, say it. Um, and, I was, like, so annoyed at all of the backlash she was getting because I was, like, literally everyone has been talking about impeaching him. But now all of a sudden, like, you want to be, like, respectability police and be like, oh, she shouldn't have said that. That's, like, not an appropriate way to say that. And then, like, to not even be backed by your own party. But I'm like, is she not telling the truth? Is this not what people have been saying? Um, But it's like, oh, Muslim women shouldn't be like that. Meanwhile, we literally (laughs) elected as president
0: someone who said he would grab us by the genitals like just just like yeah just, i just <laughs> if we're gonna be doing that and talking about the way we use language yeah. like we rewarded that behavior exactly so oh. yes.
1: <laughs> it's it's very frustrating to have this and like the same with elhen where i just you know was supporting her a hundred percent because just these unwarranted attacks at this level, right? And like you were saying, specifically targeted towards Muslim women. And I think you see that from America in general. And then I think you also can see this like within the Muslim community yeah. itself, right? Of women getting pushed back because they're starting to occupy leadership yeah. roles. And I think that's something really we have to think about as a Muslim community, as women start stepping forward of, How do you navigate this space? Right. Because I'm sure all of them will say, you know, they weren't seeking Mm -hmm. to be in this position. Right. But the position like found them where they were seeing injustices happening in their community and they recognized their own voice and their ability to speak out on behalf of their communities. And then you also have to deal with like negative criticism within the Muslim community. So there has to be like a better way to like navigate this to offer support to women who do want to occupy. Yeah. And like we have to figure it out.
0: Like we have to figure it out because, you know, our religious leadership spaces are occupied by men. And and so the more Muslims get civic engaged, we're talking about women like who's starting our nonprofits women Mm -hmm. you know who's running for office you know these muslim women like who is actually like holding the communities down and together (laughs) women who's teaching our kids women so like the people that are actually in those positions of leadership and inshallah will continue to be in positions of leadership are going to be muslim women and so we have to figure out how we're going to address this how we're going to prepare for this how we're going to remain like resilient to like the struggles that come internally from within our community as well as externally and like i don't have any answers Mm -hmm. Right now. But until until we figure it out, um, I am curious, like, what keeps you going? Like, knowing that if like at the end of the tunnel potentially is like all of these Muslim prominent Muslim women that we've named and like the way that they're treated, like what keeps you on a path of like some you know, of, of visibility, even though you value privacy and even though there's yeah. there is a huge risk that you could you know, accidentally become one of these folks.
1: (laughs) Accidentally. (laughs) No, it's real. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) You know, it's so funny because I I don't talk about this a lot on the show, but, you know, I got this master's in theological studies when I went to divinity school because I actually did want to occupy some type of like leadership role within the Muslim community. And I I wasn't sure what that was, but I just felt like I had this innate ability to serve as a leader. And I went through this whole thing of like being like, you know, why do you wanna serve as a leader? Why is this your goal? Like, is it really about benefiting the community or is it about like serving Mm -hmm. your own self? Um, And eventually I decided like this isn't the path for me because my intentions weren't pure along that path. and so now when I think about occupying leadership positions, I think it's something that personally I don't want to pursue. And so I think I don't want to accidentally fall into yeah. that either, <laughs> um, because I think um, when you do and like even the Muslim women we've named, I think it's a very difficult thing to civically engage in a government that actively works against you. <laughs> um, and I think that sometimes you do end up making concessions that maybe you wouldn't normally make, but um, you have to end up balancing a lot of things that maybe do go against your values, you know, like as a woman, as a Muslim, as like a person of color, because you're trying to advance some other agenda. And I think this happens within government. I think it happens within your workplace. Um, I think it's just a really difficult thing to do. So it's like you're serving your community, but I think also oftentimes you will also be acting against the interest of your community. And I, I don't know how to, I, I'm like, I can't be in that space. Yeah. <laughs> That's you like know really what, difficult. You know what keeps
0: me going and what this whole conversation makes me think of? What? Prophet Musa,
1: Eli Islam. <laughs> Prophet <laughs> Musa,
0: like... I have so much love for Prophet Musa. (laughs) Like I feel like he is so relatable. Like it's like Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, like obviously have a lot of love, but I also look up to him as like almost this like perfect ideal. Mm -hmm. And what I love actually about both of them, because actually now that I'm thinking about it, like Prophet Musa when when god came to him he was like wait hold up you you talk about me like you sure you got the right guy i got the stutter like i am you got the wrong one today like literally was so uncomfortable and like prophet muhammad like when he got the revelation he like ran to his wife and Mm -hmm. was like like i'm going crazy like i don't know what's going on like this Mm -hmm. is scary like what is happening and so like that gives me comfort in like a Mm -hmm. weird way. And just like knowing that, like it's not comfortable to be told or put in a position where like you are expected to influence people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, if you think that you're the person that's supposed to be influencing people, like you probably have it wrong, but Mm -hmm. usually it's the people who like actually don't think they're the right ones who end up having the most impact. Like, because Mm -hmm they have the right intentions because they actually have to talk themselves into it so when they're actually doing it they're doing it you know like they're not just half doing it it's like no okay we're we're doing this mission and we're willing to sacrifice it all because we know Mm -hmm. this mission is for a higher purpose and so Mm -hmm. just like thinking about all of the religious examples like I, i can't you know like i just don't think of my own like religious leaders and like role models as people who are like been called to action and they're like oh i've i've been dreaming of this like since the day i was born like it's, it's always a story of like yeah. are you kidding me like these people like my own people are going to turn against me like this is yeah. terrifying my family my friends totally. and god's always like you know i got you like you know just yeah. keep doing what you're doing and i got you and so that, that's I ho- inshallah that is the case for us as well <laughs>
1: Inshallah. I think, yeah, as long as you keep renewing your intentions. And I, I'm thinking about the quote that you said earlier you know, whoever desires fame is a servant of fame. Like, I mean, it is just what it is, right? Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, why you're doing sure. this. <laughs> cool. Um Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was like a heavy conversation with like not any real no. answers. A lot of
3: questions.
1: <laughs> <But> <laughs> a lot of questions. I'm looking forward to talking more to Dahlia today and just hearing more of her thoughts as being a Muslim woman who is working in a very public space. Um, <laughs> you like alerted to me that she has like a ton of Twitter followers, and I had like no yeah. idea. <laughs> we also, no, we also, like,
0: maybe my friends were talking about like how there's some people who are famous and some people who are Muslim famous. And I feel like Dalia is one of those people yeah. who toes the line where it's like, pretty much all muslims like in this country like have heard of her, have seen her stuff, know who she is and like yeah. some non-muslims will be able to like recognize her name but for the most part she's like incredibly yeah. muslim famous and like get, you know very well known and also like the larger mainstream space
1: yes oh my gosh i know dalia is going to hate this intro like um, like big <laughs> upping her <laughs> (laughs) But just a little bit about Dahlia. She's the director of research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, where she leads the organization's pioneering research and thought leadership programs on American Muslims. With John Esposito, she co-authored the book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. And she was appointed to President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in 2009. Her 2016 TED Talk was named one of the top TED Talks that year, so you should definitely go listen to it after you listen to this episode. She is a frequent expert commentator in global media outlets and international forums, and she's also the CEO of Magahid Consulting. Wow. (laughs) I'm like exhausted. She's so busy. (laughs) Well, we're happy that Dalia made time to talk to us. Let's hop into the interview. Let's do it. Assalamu alaikum, Dalia, welcome to the show.
3: Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's great to have you on. We've been wanting to have you on for a really long time, so it's great to finally have you on here.
3: Thank you so much. You guys have built up such a great program, so I'm really excited to be on. So
1: we want to start the conversation here. I think it's always an interesting place to start and something that Mecca and I talk about a lot of just being like a professional Muslim <laughs> and how we're always like, no, I don't want to be a professional Muslim. But you know, inevitably when you have a position or like a role, right? Where you are, even if you yourself aren't pitting yourself as a professional Muslim, that is the way that you are perceived. And so I think that you're someone who is perceived as being like a spokesperson for Muslims. You know, as you're taking this journey, what makes you feel like you're the right person to do this? Right. And be a representative essentially of Muslims and what we think and how we think. Mm -hmm. What made you feel like you were the right person to be in this place doing this work?
3: I didn't think I was the right person at all. I was like terrified of that weight, that responsibility and that um, and eventually that visibility. But the way that I mean, so far, I'm I'm a nerd behind a computer looking at numbers (laughs) in my free time. I mean, this wasn't my job yet. I was doing completely different work, corporate consulting at Gallup before. Um, and and they're like, hey, if you want to look at these numbers, go ahead. It's, you know, it's on, it's your evenings and your weekend. You're, you know, go ahead. We don't <laughs> go, go knock yourself out. And so with my activism, it was always driven by a sense of not to be a spokesperson for Muslims at all, but rather to... Kind of just to speak up for myself and to be able to express how how I saw the world and and write about it in you know in my college newspaper and and organize people around it i I always felt this sense of responsibility. Maybe this sounds so cliche, but it really is what happened, but when I was fifteen, I read Malcolm X, and it completely like politicized my outlook on the world. And, and I just like saw things completely differently and felt like this drive and this need and this responsibility to work for like a more just reality. I wonder if we can talk a
2: little bit about like being a woman leader, because You know, it's been jarring for me to watch specifically the new members of Congress, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, have faced in their short time in Congress. I feel like I've heard their names more than I ever did with congressmen like Carson or Ellison in their entire times in office. And so just from your own experience, do you feel that there are challenges that Muslim women leaders face that Muslim male leaders are less likely to encounter or just they have a different set of challenges?
3: I think that Muslim women leaders are afforded very little in the way of tolerance for for deviation like they are expected to follow a very strict script they're expected to be perfect any slight you know turn away from you know, the perfect hijab and the perfect way of speaking and the perfect language and the perfect, you know, framing of whatever the the problem in the way that is very reflective of what, you know normative um you know, Muslim perspectives is just going to get you immediate pushback. And I I definitely see that men are given A lot more leeway a lot more leeway women are sort of like the vessel of of culture and the vessel of all that is like normative um ethics and and so they're just sort of implicitly seen as being the the model the role model whereas for some reason men men don't get that kind of weight put on them that that's been my experience absolutely and um and I remember I actually I always tell young women or even older women that you know all this rhetoric when I was growing up I was always hearing I don't know if you this is still the case but I was constantly hearing this This refrain that you know, you represent Islam if like you wear hijab, like you are, you represent. And so that's what I was constantly hearing. So I started wearing hijab when I was 17, right before I started college. And like, I had this feeling like, oh my God, I represent, I have to be perfect, I have to be the best. And that's what I kept hearing like, you have to be the best, you have to be, you know. You are representing Islam. These people don't know anything about it. And they see you and they're going to think everything about you is Islam. And so you have to be like perfect. And God, was it a crippling weight to carry? And I tell people like now, I'm like, don't put that pressure on young women trying to like if they're trying to wear hijab, that's them. That's one individual trying to do what they're doing. And they're not representing anyone but themselves, and that's it. and And just stop this, and and to stop putting that on yourself, because I think it's it's such a heavy weight to carry that it becomes too heavy, and people just give up on it. And I think that that's an added thing,
2: as we've seen,
3: anti-Muslim
2: sentiment become normalized, uh, just not even here, but around the world. Uh, Doing this work, you know, being whether it's just like hijabi, you know, visible Muslim woman is not without its risks. And you've just alluded to that a little bit. So how did you like personally and even emotionally get to a place where you felt that the benefits to your community of like fighting for this justice and and doing that in a way that you had to sort of put yourself out there outweighed your own personal costs like even just like the cost of privacy (laughs) and like being recognized let alone like personal safety like what was that what is that journey like for you and just like feeling continuing to stay inspired and motivated in 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 your own personal capacity
3: basically I had to like get very burned out and very disillusioned and very um tired to realize to to realize that um none of this work was because i was necessary and like the minute you here's the thing I used to think what everyone thought right like when you're young you're like I want to change the world and I need to do this and And it's all about me impacting things on the outside of myself because I did something, something was different. And it sounds very benign and normal, but it's actually the fastest way to burn out and the fastest way to just disillusionment because you're not going to get the recognition ever that you think you should get. People will not be grateful. The people you're helping will hurt you. Absolutely guarantee it. If, you, if you're sincere, God will make sure that the people you're helping will hurt you. Not just not be grateful, not just not thank you, but they will hurt you. And so you have to really, either you quit or you do the the inner work of, of fixing your mindset and your and your intentions. And so I had to do that. And I had to realize that this work, I need this work. Because it is my ibada, it is my way of serving, and it doesn't not it does not need me. This work doesn't need me in any way. Nothing needs me. I am unnecessary. I'm not necessary to any change happening. I'm not necessary for the betterment of anything. God's will 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 come to pass with or without me. But it is a privilege. And I'm very grateful for that privilege to be in some way used as a means for God's will to come to pass. And and I need to do the work because it is how I show gratitude for, for the blessings I've been given of, of, of skills or abilities or time or access. And when I'm in a room where I'm the only woman, Muslim, person of color which would which happens? It's not even um, it's not a rare event. When I'm in that room, I know that it's not because I'm smarter than other people. It's not because I'm a harder worker. It's just like Allah saying, "Okay, what are you going to do? It's a test, and it's and and I'm not there for myself. Um, and and so the way to keep motivated is to totally divorce yourself of outcome of, of needing to be of the outcome. The outcome will, will be what Allah wants and all you will All you'll be held accountable for is your intentions and your actions. And those actions are for you, for your afterlife, for your fulfillment in this life. You need this work, but the work doesn't need you. And as soon as you realize that, it's not about outcome. It's not about recognition. It's not about being thanked and really keep reminding yourself. Cause it's a, it's a daily practice of, um, of internalizing that reality. Then you can stay motivated. You can avoid burnout. You can not get disillusioned and, and like, Oh man, this is, you know, this community is crazy. I don't, I don't want to do it. anymore. And that's what a lot of people say and I get it. But I'm like, it's not, it's not even about the community. It's in in the end. It's about your soul. It's about you and your Lord and serving him. And that's it. And everything else is like an accessory. It's an extra.
1: I feel like that's such a good point too. And a lesson that you just continue to learn as you get older as well of like people will always disappoint. And it's often the people closest to you. Right. So even within your own family, like you can be doing something for your family and like your sisters are giving you a hard time, your parents, and you have to remember like, okay, this is for the pleasure of Allah. This is, (laughs) this is a form of worship. Like you've been saying, because it will be a disappointment and it can be very discouraging. Um, just when you're doing any type of active service. So I want to take what you talked about and kind of like flip it because you mentioned how the work doesn't need you. But I mean, also, you're pretty popular. <laughs> um, and you've done a lot of like public speaking engagements. You've been on Trevor Noah. And I'm wondering as you're doing this work, because there have been times where people have pitted Mecca and I where they've sent us requests. They're like, hey, we want to talk about um, what's happening in Sudan. Would you like to appear on our news program? And we're like, yeah, we don't do that. (laughs) Um, And so just how do you field requests when you are someone who does have a platform, right? Um, Where you can have multiple platforms to get your message across. But how do you stay in your lane when other people will try to take you out of your lane, right? Um, and put all of these labels on you. So how do you kind of navigate that?
3: Yeah, I know it's a really good question. And it's actually really important when you're trying to kind of chart out your path is you, you do have to learn to say no a lot. I think learning to say no is like one of the most important skills of leadership, and to know when you're not the right person. And I say no to a lot of things for exactly that reason. I'm not the right person for this. I actually don't know anything about this topic. Here's three other people that would be a thousand times better. So um, being self-aware and just doing an assessment of what you do well, what you don't do well. And, and then sticking to that. Don't try to be everything to everyone. Don't try to be everywhere Um, And then the things you do well or are in your lane and are your niche can, can constantly hone those skills. Like you're never done. You're never, you know, you, you never know it all or whatever you, you know, I have to do a lot of public speaking. I constantly learn about how to do public speaking, even though I've done it a lot, but I keep, I still always want to hone my skill and, and get better at it. Um, so the, you know, commitment to doing two things, focusing on what you're going to do and, and not, and not trying to do everything. And then a commitment to constant improvement, I think is, is my recommendation for people in, um, you know, for young women, young men trying to chart their path.
2: Yeah, that's great. We actually had a question, so that leads right directly into it about advice. I feel like you've sprinkled so many nuggets of wisdom, even just about intentions, um, about making sure that you're, you know, checking and making sure that you're discussing the things that you're an expert on and making room for other voices. Um, But for those folks, you know, we're in an era era of social media. Everyone's trying to be an influencer. Everyone's trying to be famous, (laughs) get their branding. Every person has a personal brand. And the Muslim community is, of course, not immune to that. So do you have any advice specifically for young women who find themselves in a the position where they do have a platform where they do have, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people paying attention to the things that they're saying? Like how what advice would you give to them just to, to stay grounded as they're moving forward and, and building up their own careers?
3: Yeah, no, that's hard. And it's it's something that I feel I don't know if I'm qualified to even um, I didn't grow up with social media and i i'm not a, i'm not a digital native like like younger women um so i a lot of t- like i didn't get a twitter account or facebook account until i was grown up i was totally grown and and in a really serious job so i was really careful with about what i said so i don't have anything from when i was 20 that i said that you know people can bring up which is one of the lucky benefits of <laughs>
1: Yeah, lucky I was just going to say lucky you. <laughs> I know.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, being grown uh, when you join social media it does have its benefits, but I do get the I do get the the allure and the and I I mean I have the same thing. I like wow, I'd love to grow my audience even more so I can I can do better work and whatever. But I guess the the way to stay grounded is to really I mean, put the audience after the mission. And, and what I mean by that is don't live for your audience. You know, and I, I sometimes hear people talking about producing content as like you have to feed the beast. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, if you have four, four or five days in a row where you just have nothing to say and don't say mm-hmm. anything, don't live to feed the beast. I mean, live your actual real life and then post about it as, as it might be beneficial to others. Um, but don't switch that around. And I, I seriously see people like it almost looks like they're living for Instagram Mm -hmm. rather than like actually living a normal life and then posting about it.
1: Are you talking about me?
3: We <laughs> no, you know. I'm just saying like I've even read about this phenomenon where people like get dressed up it's like, oh, going out on the town. I mean, this is not even, you know, and they're not. They're not going anywhere. They're just taking yeah. a picture for Instagram. So won't like, do that. Don't live to to have this um manicured life on on social media and then the other thing is to keep in mind that a lot of people do do that and don't make your assessment of your life based on that carefully curated manicured life of someone else on social media that's not that's not their real life either
1: yeah I think it's so hard to have this conversation because you, you mentioned how like, don't feed the beast. And then I'm like, but when you feed the beast, sometimes the beast delivers, right? Yeah. but people aren't doing this without getting something in return. Absolutely. Right. And so, and, and, and I mean, I think this also just happens off of social media. I know being someone who like works and does nonprofit work where people are always like, well, you know, if the problem was solved, none of us would have jobs. <laughs> uh-huh. And, right, like this this awkward space that you live in where your job is dependent on this problem, like, continuing. Um, and I'm thinking, too, just about how we started this conversation about, you know, what does it mean to be, like, a professional Muslim? Because I think you see this happen a lot with Muslims, too, right, where the rise of Islamophobia has gotten people into career places or like Instagram influencers into spaces. Maybe they would not have been otherwise had Islamophobia not exist. So <laughs> yeah. um, it's just something that I think about a lot, how these are two like very codependent things. Um, but you know, the reality is that Islamophobia does exist, and we need people like you doing this type of work. But If it didn't exist, oh, you have something to say. It. Yeah, I
3: have like five other things I'd rather be doing. So, um,
1: tell. Can you tell us the five other things you would rather be doing?
3: uh, (laughs) I would love to write novels. I would. um, I. I'm a certified strength coach, and I used to love that kind of work of like um, coaching people on their strengths and helping them with their life and it's not, it's like a life coach, except it's more of a professional. It's like a professionalized, um, version of that. And, or, well, I know life coaches are professionals too. I'm not saying they're not, but I would just like to travel and be anonymous and just enjoy life. And I, I mean, I don't have any attachment to this career. If the problem were solved, and I have nothing else to do. I do research on other things. I mean, there's so much research to be done on Muslims. I mean, my research, by the way, I mean, just at, from a professional lens at ISPU, where, where I'm director of research, Islamophobia is just one sliver of what we do. We actually study all kinds of things that have nothing to do with how people in the general public view Muslims. We, we look at how Muslims view themselves, their challenges internally, things like you know, building more inclusive spaces for women and um, and converts and young people inside our mosques and intra-Muslim race tensions and racism. We we study um, domestic violence. I mean, so I care about the progress and empowerment of Muslims, of which Islamophobia is like one one important factor because it's an obstacle to full and equal participation. But it's certainly not my only, yeah, it's not my only focus.
1: Yeah. I'm really happy you highlighted that because just thinking about all of the other areas of work that that, like don't get attention because they're not as like sexy and like in the news.
3: Right. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up our main conversation. We always ask, you know, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners and where can people find
3: you and, and more about your work. Yeah, it's been so great talking to you guys. Um, if uh, if your listeners would like to find me on social media, um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just type my name, Dalia Mogahed, uh, and I'm also really um, I'm really excited about the work that I do at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, and you can find all our research about American Muslims at ispu.org. Awesome.
2: And I'm very familiar with ISPU. They're amazing. And so I definitely encourage all of our listeners to check it out. So thank you so much, Delia. I think our listeners will benefit a lot from all of the wonderful wisdom that you were able to share about your personal experiences and your career path. Um, We really appreciate you coming
1: on the show. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Identity Politics is a podcast created by me, Ikhlas Salim. This
0: episode was produced by Ikhlas Salim, Mecca Ali, and Heba
1: Murray. And music is by Ibrahim Azzam. Thanks for listening. Till next time.